Welcome friends, my name is Debbie Lawrence and this is episode 19 of the Compassionate Leader School podcast. This past week, my friend Jen Underhill sent me a note asking if for a future podcast, I'd expand on the topic of building resilience with healthy boundaries that I covered in episode number nine. In particular, she wanted to know how to recognize the warning signs when a person isn't respecting your boundaries and how to respond. So Jen, this episode is inspired by you. In that episode number nine, I talked about the emergence of this notion called compassion fatigue, which is a condition characterized by emotional and physical exhaustion at its extreme that diminishes our ability to empathize or feel compassion for others. It's often described as a negative cost of caring. And when it takes hold, it can leave you feeling exhausted because you've said yes to something or in a knot with guilt because you said no. To counteract this, I talked about a foundational tool for building your resilience, which is establishing, clearly communicating, and honoring healthy boundaries in all aspects of your life. I talked about what boundaries were, how they support us in our personal and professional lives, and my four-step strategy for establishing clear boundaries, complete with articulating the consequences if a person chooses to cross that boundary. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I'd encourage you to actually go back and listen to that episode first and then come back to episode 19 and listen to this second part. Now, if you did listen, let me remind you of what a boundary is. The simplest way to think about a boundary is that it's where you end and another person begins or it's the line you draw on the sand that says when it comes to X, This is what you will or can do or accept or tolerate and what you absolutely cannot or will not accept or tolerate or do or say. And know that there's different types of boundaries. I mean, think about the workplace. Uh, For example, there are physical boundaries, which might be related to a person's workspace or their desk. Things like their tote bag or their files, they're often considered to be material boundaries where your personal belongings are concerned. But thinking about uh, physical boundaries in the workplace, sometimes it's related to areas where only certain authorized personnel are allowed to go, or it may be for staff only. Or another way to think of physical boundaries are things that relate to our body. And it's whether someone can touch you or if they can hug you, uh, for example. Now, In response to Jan's question about how to recognize the warning signs when a person isn't respecting your boundaries, so that's part one of of her two questions. Remember that first of all, you have to be clear about what the boundary is, what is okay to say or or not to say. Um, And the clearer you are, the easier it is to recognize when someone crosses that boundary. Next, and I always say this, trust yourself. In other words, when you think, you know, what are those warning signs? I would offer to you that the warning signs are typically your gut instinct. It's that little nagling that's telling you that something is just not right. And I say, trust that. I have never in my whole life known someone 
who said to me, Debbie, what an idiot I was. I trusted my gut instinct and I was completely wrong. No one has ever said that. What people say to me is, I should have trusted my instincts. I knew there was something up. I wasn't quite sure what it was. And I just wish I would have, could have, should have. So when you have that sense, that's really what that warning is. It's Sometimes it's something you've heard. Sometimes it's something you've observed and you don't fully understand it, but there's just something's not right. And sometimes it's just a feeling and it could be a combination from those things. So when you're not 100% sure, it feels, I think of it as something that feels gray, right? It's, it's what you need to know is that the gray means there's a good chance when it comes to boundaries, that little warning that you get, that grayness is an indication that you were not clear in communicating the boundary and the consequences in the first place. You see, when you know you've clearly articulated the boundary, you're less likely to guess if the person's behavior is crossing the boundary or not, because you can go, I clearly articulated that. That is a violation of the boundary. And so it becomes very black and white. So I would offer to you that those warning signs, that's the gray area, which quite frankly is very common. And it means you need to go back and clean up your previous communication around the boundary. And here's how you can do that. I'm a fan of Marshall Rosenberg's model for nonviolent communication. And I teach a portion of that, um, or I teach that as a component of a bigger topic around how to have difficult conversations. And in this model for nonviolent communication, Rosenberg talks about how we get to choose how much information we share. And when it comes to setting and honoring a boundary, the truth is less is more. Now, in nonviolent communication, there are four stages that you walk through. And here's, so this is the nonviolent communication model, and I'll give you the condensed version. And then I want to talk about how I, that model has inspired me to create a four-part formula for having this boundary conversation, particularly what, when it has been gray and you've got to go back and reinforce it. So just to stay with the nonviolent communication model uh, for a moment, there are four stages that you walk through. So stage one, and this is the Coles Notes version, stage one is about your observation. So this is the stage where you're talking about facts and observations in a non-threatening, non-judgmental way. It's about describing the behavior that you've observed or experienced in as much detail and with as much context as you can provide and, and, and that you're choosing to provide. And then in stage two, it's all focused on your feelings. So this is the stage about honestly expressing the feelings that the other person's behavior has caused in you or sometimes it may also be uh, how they impacted you as well as other people. You think about that in the workplace as an example. The use of the word feeling here is deliberate and it's really important because it's not about expressing your thoughts, your analysis, your solutions, your conclusions. It's none of that. It's about authentically describing how this person's words or actions have caused you to feel. And feelings are real, they're owned by you, and therefore, they are valid and important. And a, 
the other person can challenge any conclusions or analysis or thoughts that you may have, but they can never challenge how they made you feel. All right, stage three then is about the needs, which so at this stage, you're moving on to this articulating the specific needs that you have. And then you end with stage four, which are your requests or your direct requests. And so here you make a very direct and clear request of the other person. So drawing from the essence of the nonviolent communication model, I work with a four part formula that is broken down like this. So part one, so the first thing you do is remind the other person of the boundary that was set and you speak to them about the crossing of the boundary that either just happened or you may have observed it over the past couple of days. You know, I always say that when you have to address anything, I'm talking about in a workplace application, but it's true in our personal lives, you want to do it as close to the time that um, the last incident or the sole incident happened because the further away you get from it, the foggier things get and the gray gets really, really gray. Okay, so you want to you want to go back to them, remind them of the boundary and you want to address what you're uh, you've observed that has just happened. Then in part two, so this is like the a part one of it and, and then you lead for you go from there and you speak to them and you open with this phrase. When you do A, I feel B. Now you can also choose to explain why you feel this way. And uh, that's particularly helpful if you think that they may not really understand why you said that you felt frustrated or disappointed or whatever adjective you you chose for how you actually felt. Um, but if you don't feel like it's necessary to explain your feelings, you can just let them know when you do this, when you cross the boundary in this way, I feel and you fill in the blanks. Then part three says, it goes with, and therefore, I need you to do C. And so finally, part four, then you, you make a request of them, can or will you do that? So let's use a workplace example. Let's say that you've got a coworker, his name is Tom, who others have told you that when you leave the office, he goes into your office and he rifles through the papers on your desk. And when you hear this, obviously it makes you feel really uncomfortable. So previously you spoke with him and you made it clear that he was not to enter your office in your absence. And so today you come back early from an outside meeting and as you enter your office, lo and behold, there's Tom going through the papers in your inbox. Now, using the four part formula, you could say something like this, and I'm using this from the premise that in that moment, you know, you know sometimes we're not really clear if, if he really understood then, you know, we sort of start to second guess and you're, this is all happening very quickly, but did he, did he, is he really doing what I think that he's doing? And was I not clear? Did I not say to him that if I'm not here, he can't come into my office? So this is how you may choose to address it. 
and the and it would go like this something like this tom two weeks ago i met with you and requested okay i just want to say these are your observations so tom two weeks ago i met with you and requested that you not enter my office for any reason if i'm not here you apologized then and agreed that you wouldn't do that moving forward yet I just came back from a meeting and I find you in my office rifling through the inbox on my desk. And so now you're going to let him know how he made you feel. You know, when you don't honor your agreements with me, I feel disappointed and untrusting towards you. Disappointed because I believed I could take you at your word when we talked about this. And untrusting because I now feel uncomfortable when I'm not here and my office is unlocked knowing you would just go in and start going through my things. So this is what you need. Therefore, I need you to know that when I say you are not to enter my office in my absence, I mean you are to never enter my office in my absence for any reason. And if I catch you doing this, I will have no choice but to put you in progressive discipline. Then part four. So I will ask you again, Tom. Can you honor my request to stay out of my office in my absence? This is how you address an issue when someone crosses a boundary like this one. And in this example, Tom is what I call a crosser, someone who knew about the boundary and chose to cross it all the same. In this case, because when you caught him in your office, and as I said before, you probably had that moment of disbelief and, you know, in all of, I don't know, 10 or 15 seconds, you have a conversation with yourself where you're questioning if you were crystal clear about the boundary the first time you spoke to him, you're choosing to give him another chance to show up differently. But if he were to do this again next week, then it's, you know, do not pass go, do not collect $200 in the spirit of monopoly. Now you have to apply the consequences or you'll have no credibility. In fact, if you don't enforce the consequences, you're as much as announcing that the boundary is not a true boundary. Now, there are also the pushers, who I say are trickier to deal with than crossers. Pushers are those people who don't blatantly cross your boundary, but they'll test you every step of the way. Pushers will come come right up to the line and even lean against that line to push it ever so gently. Their strategy seems to be that they want to see how far they can go and whether or not you'll react in any way. Quite frankly, they're much trickier to deal with than the crossers because the crosser is clearly violating your boundary, but the pusher hovers around the edges. Going back to our example with Tom, if he were a pusher, he might ask a coworker to come into the office with him while he looks for a file because he knows he's not supposed to be there alone. But he might think, well, she didn't say I couldn't look through the items in her inbox if a coworker were with me. Or he might even ask a coworker to go in your office to get something for him, implying that he has your permission to do this. That's pusher behavior. Or it could be like the employee who's, let's say the receptionist, at your office and her job starts at 8.30 in the morning. So she physically walks in the door at 8.30 and thinks that 
even though she still has to take off her coat and go to the washroom to brush her hair and grab a coffee from the kitchen before she gets to her desk to turn on her computer and transfer the phone, the phone from the overnight answering service, she's technically not late for work. See, with the pusher, you'll want to have the I don't want to make up a story conversation. So you speak to them about what you observed and then the story you started to tell yourself and how you thought uh, they were doing A and it made you feel B. But you stopped because you weren't positive. So out of respect, you're having this conversation and you're saying with them, you know, when I think that you are trying to take advantage, it makes me feel this way. But then I realize I don't know that for sure. I, I don't have all the facts. So I'm making up a story. And so you're giving them an, op an opportunity to have a conversation with you and letting them clarify what is actually happening. And so this will give them an opportunity to share. And if they affirm what you thought you saw or heard, then you can clearly articulate the boundary and the related consequences and end with a direct request to the other person like, can I respect that boundary or can you do that from now on? And if you genuinely discover that you were just making up a story, well, that's a whole other conversation for another episode of this podcast. Now, for some of you, this may all feel a bit icky and uncomfortable. You bet it does. Becoming a compassionate leader means being willing and able to get comfortable feeling uncomfortable at times. It also means building the skills to be a candid and compassionate communicator. You know, nobody wants to be all command and control at one extreme any more than we want to be a pushover at the other end. But we want that balanced position, that spot right in the middle, firm, fair, kind, effective, clear, candid, and compassionate, and a master of boundaries. All right, my compassionate leaders, your take action challenge this week is to create a list of at least three areas where you need to establish or strengthen your boundaries. And next to each one, I want you to write the names of the people you need to communicate this with and then work on a draft script to help you get ready for that conversation. And finally, build some real compassionate leadership muscles by having the conversations for real. Good luck and know that you're doing really important work. And Jen, I hope I answered your questions. Finally, I want to remind you, if you haven't done so already, please go to my website, debbielawrence.ca, and sign up for this podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a comment or write a review. I'd really appreciate it. Until next time, here's to giving ourselves permission to show up as open, fierce, and compassionate leaders, and always to living life abundantly. Bye for now. Thank you.